Good morning. It's good to have you here this uh, Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> anyway, today we're going to continue looking at the book of Luke. Uh, you know, Luke was the gospel that I had studied the least. And 20 years ago, before I was lead pastor here, I had a, an adult Bible class and I went through all of the book of Luke. And, and it's one of those times when you get into the word and, and you just realize how deep and how rich the word of God is. Uh, one of the things that I'm so convinced of in Luke is that we way underestimate his structure that he will line up pieces of argument or, or discussions or theologian call them pericopes, stories, but he does it, he picks and chooses in a way to make points that we often overlook. And today we're going to look at one, a series of four different stories that I think Luke very intentionally arranged to make a very significant point about himself, but also about us. As we've gone through this, we're not teaching all of Luke. We're taking select passages and looking to see how Luke shows Jesus' character as a demonstration of how we are expected to live. In other words, it's what theologians call his communicable as uh, uh, aspects of his personality, those attributes of himself that we can have. Many things about Jesus we can't do. We'll never be all-knowing. We'll never be all-powerful. But he is the ultimate demonstration of what God designed humanity to be. There are two perfect humans that have existed. Well, three, Adam and Eve before sin and Jesus throughout his lifetime. And so as we look at Jesus, we certainly need to study those attributes of his that are divine, but we make a mistake if we ignore those attributes of his that I believe the gospel writers wanted us to pick up as demonstrations for ourselves. So the first week I was home on COVID alert because I'd been exposed and Kevin looked at uh, Luke chapter 2 where Jesus at the age of 12 is left behind at the temple and his mom comes and dad and say where have you been son and he says come on guys don't you know I have to be about my father's business or my father's house and and there he's showing that I believe that that discipleship brings a focus to life what is that to be about the father's business that once we become children of God, then we have a new purpose. Uh, and as the Westminster Confession famously said, the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's, that is our calling. And then Jesus will expand on what that calling is over time as he takes us through the book of Luke. In fact, we look today at a passage that I think is intended to show exactly what he came for. Then the next week, Lucas preached and and looked at the temptation of Jesus and showed, uh, a dim, you know, Jesus, why is the story of Jesus' temptation in the Gospels? To teach us about how we resist temptation, right? And the emphasis of the passage is that he's there under the power of the Spirit. We cannot resist temptation alone. It has to have a dependency on the Spirit and then he used the truth of Scripture. He repeated Scripture back to Satan as part of his uh, defeating of the temptation because we need truth in order to beat lies. And Satan is the father of lies. So that temptation is about lies. That's what it is. Temptation is always a lie. It's, it's saying that something will meet a need that it's never intended to meet. Whether it's... it's 
lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, or the boastful pride of life. Whatever those temptations are, that they are always the attempt to bring a lie to meet a need that ultimately only God can meet. And so Luke shows in the temptation of Christ that, that it's by the power of the Spirit and the truth of the Word that temptation is resisted. Then last week, we looked at a, another characteristic also in chapter 4 of Luke, and that is that, that Jesus encountered early difficulty in all places at home. That the reality is that sometimes the hardest place to be a Christian, the hardest place to be a follower of Jesus is sometimes with the people that know us and love us best. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that. One is they know our failings. Another is they may be threatened. They may feel judged. And, and certainly there have been cases where followers of Christ have, have harmed the reputation of Christ so that people that know us well react negatively. But the great thing about Jesus being rejected by the people of Nazareth, his old friends and neighbors, is that that he was without sin and they still rejected him. So you see that there's something that goes on with that rejection that often occurs with the people that know us best that isn't just about us. After the service, a woman walked up to me. She seems young to me now because I'm so stinking old, but I'm sure, I don't know. But at any rate, she said, Andy, when I came to faith, my parents cut me off and we've had no relationship since. Can you imagine how deep that kind of hurt is. And many of you have had that kind of hurt with people that, that just wouldn't ex embrace your acceptance of Christ. And, and the story of Jesus in Nazareth demonstrates how normative that can be. Today we're going to look at chapter 5. And there are five, four different sections that we're going to look at in chapter 5, which I believe Luke is very intentionally aligned together to make a very, very significant point. And that is why Jesus came. And Jesus came because of sin. Jesus came because of sin. You know, we, we Christians are, are looked at with a lot of views of how we respond to sin. Sometimes we're viewed as being judgmental. We love to point out other people's sin. Why ignoring ours? Sometimes we're, we're accused of being hypocritical. We judge other people for the very sins we complete. And, and the reality is all of those things are true on one level. We as followers of Christ are ourselves not perfect. We are broken. That's the point of the gospel. And we often fail in living out the Christian life. So, so how does Jesus, how does the Bible treat sin? Um, one of my, what, uh, let me tell you a story about when Julie and I were dating. I, I know everyone's mystified. Why did she marry him? And, and I, I can't explain it. God just does things. You know what I mean? There are miraculous things that happen. I, I told my dad early on, I think I'm going to ask Julie to marry me. He said, you're a fool if you don't. He made it really clear, you choose her or we choose her. Either way, son, um, you know. And, and, but one of the tests that I passed when we were dating is that she had always had a history of getting a, a skin infection called impetigo. And she would get them on her arms. And they would wrap her arms with gauze and, and give her antibiotics and it would go away. But not, it's a nasty skin infection. And, and and, but she saved the best for me because when we were dating, she got impetigo all over her face. So she had these big open scabs on her face and, and it was kind of a test, you know. She still looked better, 
than I did. I mean, there was no problem as far as I was concerned. But she had three wonderful Christian uh, roommates who had read about impetigo and panicked. So they sat her down and said, now, if you touch anything, you have to disinfect it. And, and before social distancing was the thing, they did social distancing. She'd walk into the room and they'd go, ah, and leave. I mean, the, if she sat down, they'd say, make sure you spray that. I mean, everything she did, it was a really warm, special time in a relationship with them. And, and so she, we were out on a date and she told me about it. So you know what I did. I opened the door and screamed, unclean, unclean, empty the rooms, unclean, impetigo, God help us. Some reason we've not maintained a strong friendship with those people. I don't know, but, um, and sometimes that's kind of the way we act about sin, isn't it? Turn to Luke chapter 5. I want you to see a passage that will actually, I'm actually going to use a verse about unclean just to prove to you how significant it is. Luke chapter 5. First, I want you to see that sin separates us from God. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee, it has multiple names, the, po- the people were crowding around and listening to the word of God, the word from God that Jesus proclaimed. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, and the one belonging to Simon asked him to put out a little from the shore, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. The, the acoustics on water, if you've ever been, you know, you can hear things on water. This allowed Jesus to go out away from the crowd and his voice to be amplified. They didn't have PA systems. Um, and, and they learned how to do sound. Um, some of the great uh, revivalists in the early days of the American colonies spoke to as many as 20,000 people at once without microphones. They learned how acoustics worked and they would establish themselves. And Jesus is doing that here. They're up the slope. He's out on the water and his voice is amplified so that he can be heard. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down the nets for a cash. Simon answered, master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. You're a carpenter. I'm the fisherman is what he's saying here. Really? You think I don't know how to fish? And then, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now, these probably are 30, 40-foot boats. They are not little uh, fishing boats like we have. They are significant boats because the Sea of Galilee is 8 miles by 14 miles. It's a significant body of water, and the waves could be substantial. So these are significant boats, and they brought in so many fish that, that they literally begin to sink. And Peter is now, as he so often does in the Gospels, eating his words. And when Simon Peter saw this, verse 8, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Sin separates us. 
Sin separates us from God. When you read the book of Leviticus, I know many of you do every week, it's, it, 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 it is a rough book. I, I, when I first started as, as lead pastor here, I did a series from Leviticus 1 through 6 of the sacrificial system. And, and one of the ladies in the church came up to me afterwards and said, your, your, your sermons on the sacrificial system, she's back there, Mason. I don't know where you're going, but she's right there. Um, so... I'm just trying to help, you know, it's just part of my ministry here. Uh, one of the ladies in the church said, your sermon on those sacrifices made me sick. At least I can go here at home and hear Dr. Swindoll. <laughs> Love you too. Um, now, I mean, you read the book of Leviticus, and it, it, it really is kind of disgusting. It's blood and guts. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. But the theme of Leviticus is very clear, and that is that God is holy and we're not. Holy means separate, so distinctively different that he is completely different from us in his perfections. And we are totally not holy. And so you have this sacrificial system that the priests were told to live out in the book of Leviticus, all of which was designed to drive home to the Israelites just how great the gap, the separation is between us and, between us and God. And as you read the scriptures, you learn that not only does sin separate us from God, but sin is what separates us from others, right? Right? That when, when relationships are damaged, there's always sin at the root of it. Whether it's jealousy or judgment or, or fear or whatever, they're, that, they're, that relationships are broken because of sin. That's why, by the way, in 2 Corinthians, especially chapter 5, there's this huge theme of reconciliation. Because what Jesus does in the gospel is he reconciles, he reestablishes broken relationships by his death on the cross, he allows us to have a new relationship with God the Father by forgiveness of our sins through his perfection. And that is intended by God to create relationships with others. That's what the body of Christ is intended to be. And one of the perversions of the body of Christ today is that we've gotten so performance-oriented that we've lost that sense that we come to church not only to hear the word, but to build these reconciled relationships with each other. That, that are intended by God to be supernatural. The church is intended to be a place where we have supernatural relationships that, that bridge across social structures and racial structures, economic structures. It is intended to be a place where the love of Christ is so powerful that Republicans and Democrats can like each other. That... that because the commonality of Christ is so powerful that we demonstrate the reconciliation we have in Jesus in the way we're reconciled to each other. Because sin separates. Notice what happens to Peter. Peter gets this, I love Peter. I love Peter. Peter would have been such a great friend to have. And, and, and Peter gets this, his eyes open and he says, holy moly, Except in Greek. Holy moly, you're the son of God. Please leave me. Please leave me. Why? Because I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I'm a sinner. I, I'm broken. I, 
I've done things. I've said things. I've thought things. I am something that, that shouldn't even be in the same room with you. I'm, I'm a sinner. Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. It's funny, isn't it? That Jesus will raise people from the dead. He will heal the blind. But for, but for a fisherman, a really big catch did it. Isn't that funny? That he couldn't lie about. He saw it, you know. Um, you know what that illustrates? The Spirit works in each of our lives in ways that are particular to us. When you, read, when you read the stories of Christians, it's always interesting what the Spirit used to cause each follower of Christ to click over. That, and, and, and it can be the oddest thing because it's an individual work by the Holy Spirit. And that's what happened with Peter. Then the Lord does something really crazy. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of your sin. And from now on, I'm going to use you to fish for people. So they pulled their boats up ashore, left everything, and followed him. Meeting Jesus exposes our sin, but the amazing thing is Jesus uses sinners to reach sinners. One of the great lies is that I can't be used by God until I get my act together. Well, first of all, we'll never get our act together, right? We, we, you and I will never live up to our own standards, much less the standards of Christ. But isn't that okay? Because isn't that the point of the gospel? Isn't the point of the gospel that I can't do it, but Jesus did? Isn't the point of the gospel that I can't earn it, but he's given it? Isn't the point of the gospel that if, if I have to accomplish it, I'm lost, but because he gives it in his mercy and grace, I'm secure? And yet Satan tells us a lie that we have to get it together first. So first of all, he wants us to see that when we come to grips with who God is, sin separates us from him. Look at verses 12 through 16. Here we see that God eradicates the effects of sin. God eradicates the effects of sin. Verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now, leprosy is, uh, the word here can be used of multiple diseases, not just Hansen's disease. But what it clearly is, is a skin disease, maybe like impetigo, but one that was viewed as incurable and one that was candidly, fairly ghastly and one that not only separated you from other people, but separated you from being able to worship the Lord. When you read the book of Leviticus, and I hope you do sometime. In chapter 13, you discover just how much having leprosy would separate you. Let me read to you two verses from chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Anyone who has such a defiling disease must do these things. Wear torn clothes. Well, that's not so bad. You've seen jeans lately. Um, let their hair be unkempt. Eh, I wish I had hair. Cover the lower part of their face. We'll look at all of y'all. Um, and cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. 
In other words, when someone with leprosy came into town, they had to dress and show their appearance in such a way that everyone knew exactly what was wrong. And then they had to announce their disease by calling out, I'm unclean. Because if, if, a, if an observant Jew came to brushed up against them, they themselves would have been made unclean. And what you discovered from reading the law, that if you were unclean, you couldn't go to the temple and worship God. Verse 46, this is really hard. And as long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. And they must live alone. And they must live outside the camp. Leprosy was an illustration, in my opinion, of the alienation that comes about from, uh, between us and God and therefore between us and other people. And I, I think there's some debate by theologians whether leprosy always represents that, but in this string of passages, to me, it is absolutely clear that that's the point he's making. A man comes up to Jesus and he has leprosy and perhaps as he's walked up to the crowds, he's yelled, unclean, unclean, unclean. Lord, if you're willing, he fell his face on, to the ground and begged him, you can, make me un you can make me clean. Verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and he said, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them, the priests. And yet the news about him spread all the more so the crowds of people came to hear him to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is a man who wore the evidence of his disease and by his very words, Jesus eradicated that evidence. And I think it's an illustration of what God does in his forgiveness for sinners. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he, he eradicates that reality of our sinfulness. He makes us clean. Now, some have struggled, why Why? Would someone that had a disease that they couldn't help be barred from worship? Because the Old Testament, uh, it didn't bar them from knowing God. It didn't bar them from being eternally with God. But the Old Testament law was, was an attempt to demonstrate in a concrete way just how deeply we are separated from God. And so people that were diseased, people that were lame, uh, multiple types of people were barred from entering the temple because God wants us to see that none of us is good enough. No matter how well we dress up, how well we clean up, how much we make an effort to appear good enough, none of us is. But Jesus, Jesus could heal the leprosy of a man. He can heal the sin in you and me. And with the word, I forgive you, we're clean. He fulfilled the sacrificial system by dying the cross as the ultimate Passover lamb and, and resurrected on the third day to demonstrate that he had borne the price for my sinfulness and was resurrected to show he had defeated it. And scripture says, all I have to do is place my hope and trust in him. 
So the burden of being good enough is gone. The burden of looking good enough is gone. And the joy of being clean in his presence is ours. So in the case of Peter, he demonstrates that sin separates us from God. And in the case of the man with leprosy, he indicates that God eradicates the effects of sin. Verses 17 through 26, we see that Lord actually forgives our sin. Look at verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there and they had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, all over Israel. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. And some men were carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. And when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on this mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. By the way, when you read the narratives of Scripture, always take time to visualize it. Put yourself in the narrative. Oh, one of the things that's great, many of you know Julie is an artist. She started that when she retired from being a school principal and she discovered she's really gifted at it. But I should have known because all of our married life, I could turn to Julie no matter what was happening and then not, I don't ask her, what are you thinking? I ask her, what picture do you have? And she always describes things in pictures. She visualizes things in pictures. It's, it's fascinating. And she's taught me that when I read Scripture, I make a horrible mistake if I don't visualize this. Think about this. Think about this. According to the book of Mark, they may well be in Peter's house in Capernaum. If you go with us to Israel, you see the house. There's a Catholic church over it, and it's, you can look down into it. And, and Peter is standing there next to Jesus. I can just see him kind of being the bouncer because he's a subtle kind of guy. And, and the four men that are carrying this lame man try to get him in, but they can't because the, ro- the doorway is, is so blocked. And so they say, hey, watch this. They're guys. And they go up to the side of the house and go up the outward stairs to the roof because the roof was used as kind of a second floor cool room. They'd go up there on the evenings when the breeze and, and enjoyed the breeze because it was a flat roof made of of wood with clay and straw on top to make it um, solid. And they go up on top of the roof and they say, hey, watch this. They start digging a hole in the roof. Can you imagine Peter's response? Hey, oi, what you guys doing to my roof? Come on. And literally they dig such a large hole, stuff is falling down on Jesus and everybody else and the hole is big enough and now a guy comes down in in a bedroll for crying out loud. And at this time, Peter's going non-linear. And the guy comes down in front of Jesus and Jesus heals him. He heals him. But first, he does something that's totally inappropriate. Jesus saw their faith and said, friend, Your sins are forgiven. Well, he didn't ask for his sins to be forgiven, first of all. That wasn't why he's there. As far as we know, he came because he was paralyzed, right? He he came to be healed. But Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach us something. First of all, that according to the curse in Genesis chapter 3, all physical things are a result of sin in the world. Um. 
lameness, blindness, all of those came as a result of the curse. Not because of the person's sin, John chapter 8, who sinned that this man be born blind. Jesus said none of those. It's to demonstrate God's power. But, But that all of this that's so bad in the world is a direct result of humanity's refusal to live the way God wanted to. He told us if you do that, it's going to be bad, and God's word is always true. It's bad. So they let the man down, and Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, you can imagine what the religious leaders did. The Pharisees, verse 21, and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this guy? He's speaking blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Remember Psalm 51, David said, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. All sin is ultimately against God because he is the giver of, the, of law, of good. He is the one who is true. So all sin is ultimately a disobedience running against his truth, right? And so they're right. You're, you're saying something would, would make you equal with God. And notice how Jesus responds. Jesus knew what they were thinking. He said, So why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven? Well, if I say your sins are forgiven, you can't prove whether they're not. But only God can forgive. But if I say you're healed, I can prove whether you are or not. But sometimes doctors can heal. It's it's one of those questions that they can't answer correctly. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, his favorite title for himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he took the paral- said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God, and they were filled with awe and said, we've seen remarkable things today. Je- Jesus wants the crowds to know, yeah, I can, I can heal you. But I've come to deal with the ultimate problem. I'm here to forgive your sins. Because that's the real issue. You realize how many times we carp and complain and get all worked over just symptoms of the problem when we we try to avoid the real problem? So often the real problem is where we've chosen to deny the truth of God and do things in a way that's inconsistent with his will and then we want him to fix the problem but we don't want to deal with that and Jesus would say to us you know I care about those problems but ultimately it's the sin problem and ultimately the solution is the forgiveness of sins that comes through his death on the cross but by the way first of all this is the reason he came remember the purpose don't you know I have to be about my father's business This is the Father's business, to bring forgiveness for sins. He'll say in another place, I have come to save that which was lost. Seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to bring salvation to those of us who were dead in sin. And how do we gain that? We know the answer, by faith. But did you notice whose faith God honors here? Whose faith Jesus honors? Verse 20, Jesus saw their faith. I am absolutely convinced that we don't lead more people to Jesus because we don't trust Jesus with them. 
we're so caught up in the fact that they have to believe that we're not actively trusting God for what he can do in their lives. So we don't pray with the earnestness we have. We don't share with the integrity we have. But according to this passage, part of what God responds to is our faith on behalf of them. That's why we pray. We believe that God can act in their lives. We trust that God can act to bring someone to Christ, to turn them away from the way they're going. We're talking about prayer right now with the transition. And, and, and part of what I want to encourage you to do is remember that whatever you pray for, you pray with faith that God can work. Trusting that God will act. Even in the lives of those people who have rejected you. Point number one, sin separates us. Point number two, God can eradicate the effects of sin. Point number three, God forgives sin. And Jesus has the right and power to forgive sin. But what does that say about us sinners? Look at chapter, verses 27 through 31. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, he said. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Uh, tax collectors were hated. He was Jewish. His name's Levi, one of the tribal names of Israel. Uh, they, they worked contracts with Rome. Rome said, you have to give us this much money. And then they would set how much they collect and keep the difference. So they were often wealthy men because of their abuse of their fellow citizens. They were despised. They were the tax collectors and sinners. Jesus seeks one out and says, follow me. Levi clearly, I believe, had heard Jesus speak and seen what he did, and so he gets up and follows him. Verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to Jesus, to his disciples, excuse me, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. By the way, part of the reason I believe that the healing of the leprosy is tied to the sin is because Luke now quotes Jesus as using the illustration of the doctor healing the sick. I think that's part of how he ties it together. What is, how does God view sinners? He wants to be their friend. He, Jesus went and ate and drank with them. The religious leaders had, had misappropriated the truth of the book of, book of Leviticus that said we we're to separate ourselves from sin and said, therefore, we separate ourselves from anyone who isn't like us. But in doing so, what do we do? When we follow that path, we, we rob people of the opportunity to hear about Jesus, right? Now, there Someone last night in the service raised their hand and said, now, aren't there limits? Yes, yes. There are places that Christians don't go and things that Christians don't do, certainly, that would compromise their own faith. But, but most of us, that's not our problem, right? Most of us, we are placed by God in context where we're close to people who don't yet know Jesus. And how should we respond? Jesus so befriended them that they invited him to dinner. 
and, and he was having enough of a good time with them that the religious leader's saying, what's, what's, he, what's he doing here? Jesus loves sinners. Thank God. Because none of us would be here if we didn't, right? But one of the things we struggle with is, is in our own desire, and thank God he gives us a desire to become more like him and to pursue righteousness and live out our faith. In our own desire to do that, sometimes we not only learn to hate the sin, but we act like we hate the sinner. One of the things that's so amazing about Jesus is he is the one perfect human being since the fall, and yet one of the greatest accusations against him is that Man, he just, he just likes bad people. And, and men and women, that directly relates to what your business is. Wherever God has put you, your business is to love the sinners that God has put you near. Not just in church. There are plenty of sinners in church. I'm the chief of sinners. But in your job, in your neighborhood, in your clubs, in your community. Uh, we are sent out to carry the message of a God who forgives sins. Even though sin is separated, this gospel is intended to, to break the walls of alienation down and, and bring reconciliation, renewed love and friendship. We're here to draw sinners into fellowship with Jesus because Jesus came draw sinners into fellowship with God. And that, that, that should shape the way we speak of unbelievers. That should shape the way we respond to unbelievers. And it should shape the way we view our lives. We are, whether you call us ambassadors or whatever terminology you choose, we are sent by God to help sinners about a God who gave his son on the cross to pay the price for any evil with them so that they might be reunited with God and enjoy the life that he promised and made us for. That's what Jesus looked like. And that's what you and I are supposed to look like. So that we live lives of reconciliation with each other, which means learning how to get along, and we live lives of drawing others to reconciliation with Christ by demonstrating the love and forgiveness that he's given us. Please pray with me. Lord, we confess that we struggle with sin. Sometimes we justify it, but in our heart of hearts, we know that it does a lot of harm. Lord, we confess that we even are more confused sometimes in the way we treat those who don't know you. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us the heart toward sinners that you have. And with that heart, we would demonstrate your love. In Christ's name, amen.